see all of you here this morning, and uh, even in first service, I know even in this service here this morning, I kind of look out and I do see some faces of people that I don't uh, know. Uh, we're glad you're here this morning, and want to just kind of bring uh, to your attention just a kind of a great opportunity that we have for you uh, this evening. If you are fairly new to the church, every so often we do what we call dinner with the pastors, and it's where we just invite people who are fairly new to the church, uh, maybe you've been coming for a month or two, or maybe you're even just first time here this morning, and have just kind of wanted to learn a little bit more about the church, maybe kind of meet uh, the pastors and the staff on a more personal level. Uh, tonight we're going to be hosting a pastor uh, dinner five o'clock here at the church, and it really is primarily designed for people who are fairly new to the church. And we just invite you to come. It's very, very casual. Uh, I'll lose the tie, I promise. Um, it's meals all provided. You don't have to bring anything. It's for a whole family. And it's just a very relaxed, casual, fun uh, environment where we just kind of are able to kind of get to know you and you to get to know us on a little bit more of a personal level. So uh, we try to get these mailed out. We try to hand these out to people. We think that kind of qualify for that, but again, with just so many new faces uh, being in the church, if you're here this morning and you would like to uh, maybe take uh, the opportunity of coming tonight and, and maybe you haven't responded or you're just getting the invitation for the first time, we would love to have you come tonight. It's not too late, uh, and so if you are uh, able to do that, Janie's there in the red. Can you just, yep, there she is. Maybe just stop and grab her after service and let her know that you'd like to come tonight. We would just love to welcome you and have you be a part of that. Um, tonight. Well, we've been kind of uh, working our way through uh, a series. When I started this, I kind of called this starting uh, the new year off right. And as I was working on it this week, I kind of realized I'm at, we're at the, this is like the last Sunday of uh, February or March and uh, February, right? Yeah, February. Okay. And so I'm kind of thinking, wow, it's kind of starting to kind of feel like it's not so much starting the new year off, and I feel like we're kind of getting far enough into the new year. I may have to follow up the next series, be, you know, kind of how to end the year on a high note. And so in this series, we've kind of been really kind of just talking about uh, some obstacles, barriers in our relationship with God, very common barriers, obstacles uh, in our relationship with God. They become obstacles, barriers in our relationships with one another. And so we've kind of just been looking at some of the more common ones here. Uh, the last couple of months. We kind of talked about the root of bitterness. We've talked about the barrier of pride, of anger, um, fear. I think a couple of weeks ago, we kind of tackled the issue um, of depression. And again, we've just really been kind of looking at not only what do those obstacles and barriers look like, but we've also kind of talked about what can we do to overcome uh, and to be victorious in those uh, obstacles and barriers, not just with God, but also uh, when those become obstacles and barriers in our relationship with each other. And so today, I kind of want to just turn our attention, our focus uh, to the barrier of our thought life. Um, and I want to look at why I believe in this day and age, in, in this particular culture, why I think it is so important that we be guarding our thought life. Um, and so I want to just kind of look at um, what does that mean, and then how do we go about guarding our hearts, guarding our minds, guarding our thought life. Proverbs 4.23 says this, above all else. Now, what he's doing there is he's really elevating about what he's about to say to a particular place of importance. He's kind of like saying, regardless of what else you have heard, Above all else, he says, 
Guard your heart. Now, why is that so important? He says, because it's going to affect everything you do. And he goes on and he says, avoid all perverse talk, stay far from corrupt speech, look straight ahead and fix, focus your eyes on what lies before you. Mark out a straight path for your feet and then stick to the path and stay safe. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get sidelined. Keep your feet from following evil. Now again, this is a decision, a choice we have to make to do. I can't do this for you. Your spouse can't do this for you. Your parents can't do this for you. You've got to make that decision and that choice for yourself. Now notice verse 23 there. Those three words, guard your heart. Now the word heart is used over 800 times just in the New Testament alone. And more than 200 times of where that word occurs, it really refers to the thought life, what's going on inside of our minds. Proverbs 23, 7 says, for as a man, and that's a gender neutral term, ladies, that means you too, okay? For as a woman thinks in her heart, so is she. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So when when the Bible refers to the heart, what it is referring to there is the thought life. What's going on inside of your mind? Now the the basic uh, New Testament equivalent of the heart there would, would again be the mind. And so Solomon is saying, guard your heart. And in saying that, what he is implying is guard your mind. Guard your thought life above all else, he says, because it is going to affect everything you do. So with that in mind, I just want to just turn our attention quickly and look at three things we need to pay attention to when it comes to our thought life guarding our hearts, guarding our minds. Now, the first thing that we need to pay attention to is what I would call the majesty of our thought life. It's important to begin with this because you got to understand that your thought life controls your life. Okay? It reigns supreme in your life. Your thought life is the driver's seat of your life. Another translation of Proverbs 4.23 says it this way. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs or flows, another translation says, for out of that flows the issues of life. And so Solomon is telling us there that our thoughts are really going to be the number one thing that controls and drives your life. Your thoughts control your attitudes, and your attitudes control your actions, and your actions drive the course of your life for good or for bad. So again, it starts with your attitude, the things you love, the things you hate, your desires, your wills, your emotions. All of these things kind of spring forth from the heart. And Jesus kind of recognized this. And so he says there in Matthew 15, 19, he said, for from the heart 
comes forth evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all other sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. And again, it is these attitudes within us that eventually kind of manifest themselves into actions. And again, those attitudes, those actions, that they will kind of manifest themselves through achievements, again, either for good or for bad. It's kind of like the saying that goes, if you sow a thought, you reap a deed. If you sow a deed, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a character. And if you sow character, you reap a destiny. So again, your achievements are kind of all wrapped up in your attitudes, your actions, and your achievements. Solomon said, out of the heart flows or springs the issues of life. So he says, out of your thoughts, out of your attitudes, your actions, your achievements, it flows. And that's why I call this the majesty of our thought life, because again, our thought life controls our life. It reigns, it controls, it molds us, it makes us, it motivates us, it drives us. Now, I'm not purposely leaving God out of the equation in all of this. It's only God in the heart. It's only God residing within us through the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit that is really going to bring about the the change of our attitudes, actions, and achievements. And, And it's when God begins to flow in and through us that our attitudes, our actions, our achievements are going to be righteous. And by the same token, it is the absence of God in the heart that really is going to cause your attitudes, your actions, and your achievements to be unrighteous. Here's the thing. When God judges you, do you know what he judges? Your heart. When God changes you, do you know what God changes? Your heart. It's all a matter of your heart with God. God destroyed an entire civilization one time because they had really bad heart problems. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil all the time. And after that observation, God said to Noah, Noah, it's time to build an ark, because the thoughts of the human race had become so evil that God felt he had no choice but to wipe out the human race and start over. Now on the flip side of that, When God wants to change us, how does God do it? Well, Paul gives us some insight into that there in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and he says, don't copy or don't imitate the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. How's he going to do that? By changing the way you think. That's key. That's God's part in this. God wants to change the way you think. Why does God want to do that? Well, Paul tells you in the next sentence, he says, then, when God has changed the way you're thinking, then one of the results, the byproduct of that is, you're going to know what God wants you to do. 
and you will know how good and pleasing and perfect his will really is. See, for some of you this morning, you may not, you may not know that. This may be brand new information to you. I don't know how good, pleasing, and perfect God's will is. How would I go about finding that? He says, let God begin to change how you think. So whether you realize it or not, you are the sum total of your thoughts. Your life is where your life is because of the things that occupy your thoughts. And God will transform you first and foremost by just changing the way you think. Again, you change your thoughts, you're gonna change your attitudes. When you change your attitudes, you're gonna change your actions. When your actions are changed, you're gonna change your achievements. And when you change your achievements, it will impact, it'll alter your destiny for good or for bad, for righteousness, for unrighteousness, for godliness, for ungodliness. And that's why the wisdom of Solomon is so applicable above all else. Guard your heart. Guard your thought. Guard your mind. For out of it, for out of the heart, out of the thought life, out of the mind, flows the issues of life. So the majesty of the thought life is the first key to dealing with our thought life. Second thing we need to pay attention to regarding our thought life is the mastery of thought life. 2 Corinthians 10.5 instructs us and says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's a big order. Take every thought and make it captive to obey Christ. The Apostle Paul says you take every thought and, and, and you just imprison it. You, you, you take it captive and then you obey Christ out of that is what Paul is saying there. So how do you do that? How do we master the thought life? First of all, and this is probably pretty easy, you've already figured this out, you've got to think pure thoughts if you want pure actions. Because again, thoughts flow into actions. So if you want pure actions, you've got to back up and say, okay, first of all, I've got to get pure thoughts. And this is the point Paul had in mind in Philippians 4.8 when he says, fix or focus your thoughts on what is true, honorable, and right. Think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Now it's important to remember the context in which Solomon spoke these words in Proverbs 4.23. And it is in this particular context, if you read that, that you'll find Solomon is talking to his son. And he's talking to his son about living a very pure, moral life. And what Solomon is saying to his son is, he's saying, son, child, if you don't want to get into trouble, if you don't want your life being driven over a cliff, watch, guard your thought life. In order to guard your heart, to protect your mind, you have to think pure thoughts. 
That's what he's trying to get across there to his son. That's what he, he, he would want to get across to us as well. Now, in today's culture, that is a pretty tall order. In America today, as, as I look at the culture, as I look at the landscape today, I, I mean, it just seems as if the sewer pipe is just bursting open with pornography, unclean, and impure thoughts are just flooding the landscape. I mean, the, the internet, if you just stop and think about that, I mean, with all of its positive and wonderful contributions to society, okay, it also has some very negative and, and just some very uh, uh, um, horrifying consequences as well. And it seems in today's society, what has become horrible yesterday, I mean, what just shocks us yesterday, today becomes kind of acceptable and normal. And it just becomes a stepping stone for something worse. What is the basic message of pornography and all immorality? I believe it is this, that sex can be separated from love. That, that's the basic message, I think, that pornography is trying to convey in our culture today, that sex can be separated from love. And I believe the Bible teaches the exact opposite thing, is that you cannot separate sex from love. And the basic message of pornography is that sex is separated from love. And it's okay to separate sex from love. And therefore, when you separate sex from love, you also are able to separate it from commitment. You're able to separate it from morality, from responsibility, that somehow we have the ability to take the gift of sex and just separate it out, compartmentalize it from everything else in life. God's given us just some incredible gifts God's given us just some beautiful and very unique opportunities. And we talk a lot about that here at Praise Community Church. I think one of the greatest gifts and one of the most beautiful gifts that, that God has given to us is this very powerful sex drive. And the pornographer recognize and understand this. As a matter of fact, they use it to our disadvantage. Did you know that in America, today, pornography is a $13 billion a year industry? There are over 68 million searches for pornography daily in the United States. 68 million searches daily for pornography in the United States, and it makes up 25% of all searches being done on the internet. One of the leading porn sites on the inter internet receives 1.68 million visits per hour. Per hour, 24 hours a day. 70, I, I, I was just stunned at this. 
70% of all internet porn traffic occurs during the workday hours, 9 to 5. Thinking, what are people doing at work? Some estimate that as many as 80% of video stores now rent hardcore pornography. As a matter of fact, there are more outlets now that rent hardcore pornography than there are McDonald's restaurants. The United States has now become the world's leading producer of pornography, churning out as many as 400 new videos per week, which kind of amounts to 20,000 new titles every year. If you kind of figure that out, every 39 minutes, a new porn video is created in the United States. After service, I was kind of just inundated by, you know, comments uh, from people um, on this. I mean, all, I mean, you know, affirmative uh, of talking about this because they just said, you know, just it's been amazing how that they've been, you know, following certain ministries the last couple of weeks and that it just really seems like a lot of ministries are talking uh, about the problem that this is becoming in, in our culture. And, and I'll tell you what, the enemy is behind this. Why, why would the devil be up to his ears in this kind of stuff? Why would he be trying to use this? Because here's what he understands. If he can change, alter your thoughts, he can change and alter your attitude. And if he can change and alter your attitude, he can also change and alter your actions. And if he can change and alter your actions, he can change and alter your achievements, and it is going to impact your destiny. So the devil wants to put this stuff in our minds. He wants you to get your brain addicted to this stuff called pornography. Some people will ask, you know, come on, man, what is the harm of pornography? I mean, does it lead to degeneracy? No, it is degeneracy. Does it lead to immorality? It is immorality. Pornography is not a pastime. It is a pathway that takes you somewhere you don't want to go. Pornography doesn't lead to immorality and depravity. It is immoral and it is depraved. Again, look at the warning that Solomon gives his son in verse 27. A great analogy. He said, can a man carry fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? You, you carry pornography in your heart. It's going to burn you. It's going to destroy your relationships. And then look at verse 25. He said, do not desire her beauty in your heart. What is Solomon saying? He's saying, do not allow these things into your heart. Do not allow these things into your mind. They will engulf you. They will burn you. 
How? Well, let's just look at the physiological damage. Pornography is a physiological poison. Dr. Victor Klein, a, a psychotherapist and professor of psychology at the University of Utah, has been treating patients for decades, mostly men who have pornography addictions. And Dr. Klein reveals through his research and just through his dealing with and counseling patients, he says there are basically four things that happen psychologically to a person who consumes pornography. He says, first of all, he said the first thing is there's what they call the addictive effect. And what that is, is that a person gets so addicted to pornography, just like a person would get addicted to drugs or alcohol. And, and he says, he get, they, get, they get hooked, and they just have to return again and again and again to get a fix. And he said, every time they come back to that, that addiction to pornography, it is strengthened, it is deepened, and it is reinforced. He said, you just can't lay the stuff aside. You can't just look at it and then just take it and lay it aside and walk away from it. It's interesting. I know um, the movie Fifty Shades of Grey is, is in theaters right now, and you know, the books were just completely, totally trash and, and raunch. They were porn, and uh, I offended so many people that particular Sunday when I, you know, said you shouldn't be reading that. You should not be putting that junk in your mind. And so I was reading the reviews of the movie. Do you know the, do you know the biggest complaint about Fifty Shades of Grey? There's 20 minutes of sex in a two-hour movie, and the biggest complaint from critics, there was not enough sex, there was not enough nudity, and it was not graphic enough. Which takes you to the second thing porn does, according to Dr. Klein, is there is the escalation factor. After the addiction, there kind of just comes this escalation factor. That is what used to excite you, what used to kind of titillate you, what used to kind of thrill you. Doesn't do it any longer. And all of a sudden now your appetite for more graphic, more nudity, you know, longer scenes, all of a sudden just begins to grow and escalate. You have to have harder core pornography. It has to be more deviant. It has to be more explicit to give you the kick that you want from it. The third step after the addiction, escalation, comes the desensitization. And this is where a person just gets desensitized to it. That is, you kind of just begin to accept the things that you're seeing and reading as normal, as acceptable, as mainstream. Everybody does this. I'm just normal. Though he reads the things that he reads and sees where they once used to kind of shock and repulse and embarrass him, all of a sudden he's able to kind of rationalize that 
and, and that these things are normal. Boys will be boys. So he's addicted. The addiction escalates. Then comes the desensitization. Then Dr. Klein says the fourth phase kicks in, and then they just begin to act it out sexually. That is, he kind of begins to take the things that he has filled his mind with, and he kind of just begins to, to give action to it. Because again, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a woman thinks in her heart, so is she. And he just begins to act out and to imitate what he's read, what he sees. It affects his behavior. And he just begins to put these things into practice. Dr. William Marshall, who's a leading researcher on the effects of crime and kind of its link to pornography, did a study and he found 86% of rapists admitted to a regular use of pornography, while 57% admitted that much of what they did, they were merely acting out scenes from hardcore pornography that they viewed in the commission of their sex crimes. One law official said this. He said, not everybody who views pornography is a sexual deviant, but every sexual deviant views pornography. Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, are just a few of those sexual deviants who had a very strong addiction and consumption of hardcore pornography. Herbert W. Chase, former police inspector, said this. He says, there has not been a sex murder in the history of our department in which the killer was not an avid consumer reader of pornography. Now, I know, I know the pushback, maybe, Pastor, why are you talking to us about this? This is a church service, for goodness sakes. We're not these kind of people. I'm sorry to say that is not true. Studies are now showing the issue of pornography addiction is as big of a problem in the church as it is outside the church, maybe even bigger. Because see, those of us who come to church know this is probably wrong. And so if we're ever, you know, asked about this or surveyed about this, chances are we're going to probably lie about it more than somebody who's outside the church. Some of you have even told me you have come out of churches in which the pastor stood at the platform and told you pornography is okay and that you can watch pornography. And as a matter of fact, it's something that can be really good for your marriage if you and your wife or you and your partner sit down and watch it together. That message is being preached and taught from pulpits right here in Mason City. I don't even have a response to that. I don't know what to say to that kind of nonsense. Because, folks, it is the exact opposite of what the Word of God teaches. We are being bombarded. Pornography is so easy to access in our day and culture. And we're getting this stuff from every 
angle possible. And it's only going to get worse. And if we don't talk about that here, where, when? They were saying to me that at YFC this week, that, that they had kind of their big sex talk there at Youth for Christ this past Wednesday. Said it's the biggest crowd of kids they've ever had. I guess there was some kind of sexting uh, thing that happened in Mason City. I knew nothing um, about that. I'm not even sure what that is, and I don't care to know. Uh, it just sounds like it was not a good thing, and it was largely involved girls. So th- th- this, this thing, it, it's just exploding all around us. And, and sad to say, there may be married couples here today that have no sexual intimacy in their marriage and maybe haven't for years because the natural God-given sex drive is being met and satisfied through online porn. And part of God's beautiful design and, and his, uh, his uh, plan for marriage is that our need for sexual fulfillment, for sexual expression, is to be met through intimacy with our spouse. Pornography addiction, it redirects and destroys the relationship. Did you know that the largest consumer, the largest consumer group of internet pornography is boys between the ages of 12 and 17? One study I found recently said that 93% of boys have been exposed to hardcore pornography before they turn 18. 93%. The Attorney General's office revealed that one in five boys, one in 10 girls, have had their first exposure to pornography by the age of 12, the age of innocence. Studies are now finding that most men are delaying marriage because um, their sexual gratification, which used to be met in the context of marriage and relationships, are now being met and satisfied through online pornography. Folks, we have a whole generation that is going to take this issue to a whole new level, and we are not prepared to deal with the consequences. Moms and dads, it's imperative that we create an environment in our homes that will maximize the protection and the potential for our kids to guard their hearts, to guard their minds, to guard their thought life. And I know if kids want to get it, they're going to find a way to do it. But we need to do our part to guard their hearts, to guard their minds. For out of this, the Bible says, the issues of life are going to flow out of that. And it is going to affect everything they do. James 1.15 says this. He says, then after lust has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do you see the progression there? Lust, sin, death, L-S-D. Pornography is like a drug. 
because it entices lust, and that lust leads us to sin, and that sin brings us death, distance, alienation in our relationship with God and in our relationship with each other. The consumption of pornography is spiritual anarchy and rebellion against God. I don't care what other pastors or other churches teach on this subject. All pornography is spiritual anarchy and rebellion against Almighty God. Above all else, Above all else, guard your heart, for it affects everything that you do. And out of that flows the issues of life. So again, to master your mind, you must first think pure thoughts. Now, it's not enough to just say, I'm going to think pure thoughts, pure thoughts, pure thoughts. I'm going to think pure thoughts. How are you going to think pure thoughts if you don't have something to help you think pure thoughts? Do you know the way to not to think something impure is to think something pure? That's the way to do it. To not think of something impure is to choose to think about or to dwell upon something that is pure. Solomon said something very, very profound in Proverbs 4.20, just before he said to his son, guard your heart there in verse 23, and he says this, my son, give attention to my words. In other words, listen to what I'm saying to you. Incline your ears to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Solomon is saying, son, get the word of God in your ears and get it in front of your eyes. Do you know another thing, another way that God just wonderfully created us? God created and designed us specifically in a way that nobody can think two thoughts at the same time. Isn't that incredible? I mean, think about this. If I'm thinking about what I ought to be thinking about, I can't be thinking about what I shouldn't be thinking about at the same time. That's the way God has created us. I can't think two separate thoughts at the same time. So if I'm thinking about something that's righteous, I can't be thinking about something that's unrighteous at the same time. If I'm thinking about something that is pure, I can't be thinking about something that is impure at the same time. If I'm thinking about something that is worthy, I cannot be thinking about something that is unworthy at the same time. That's amazing. And that's the key to guarding your heart. Guarding your minds. Let the good stuff, the godly stuff, the righteous stuff, the holy stuff, let that come in and keep the bad stuff out because it affects everything you do. And out of that are going to flow the issues of life. See, some of us are living stinking lives because it is the direct manifestation outflow of your stinking thinking. So pay attention to the majesty of your thought life and to the mastery of your thought life and thirdly, to the ministry of your thought life. 
When you guard your heart, who do you guard it for? When you keep your heart pure, who do you keep it for? Jesus. What does Jesus want to do with it? He wants to transform it and minister to you through the thought life. So that you can say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.16, I have the mind of Christ. Because my mind has been focused on the word of Christ because I am choosing to dwell my thought life on the word of God. I have the mind of Christ. Look again at Proverbs 4.24. Avoid Stay away from all perverse talk. Stay far from corrupt speech. Look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what lies before you. Mark out a straight path for your feet. And then stick to the path and stay safe. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. The ministry of the thought life will do two things for you. Number one is it will govern your speech. Solomon starts off, he says, you know what? Guard your heart, guard your mind. If you do that, you know what? Verse 24, it is a slam dunk. It is an automatic guarantee. If you guard your heart, guard your mind against negative and destructive impulses and influences, then he says, perverse talk and corrupt speech, it will just stay far from you. Why? Well, Jesus tells us why in Matthew 12, 34. He says, for it is the outflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever is Full in your heart will be full in your mouth. Whatever is inside your heart will flow out of your mouth. He says good people bring good things out of the good stored up in them, and evil people bring evil things out of the evil stored up in them. So if you guard your heart and you guard your mind and you're careful of what you allow in, careful of what you allow your heart and your mind to dwell on, Jesus is saying the good you allow to flow into your heart will be the good that will flow out of your heart. You know what they say in the country, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. That's true. So the ministry of the thought life will govern your speech. Number two, the ministry of the thought life will guard your sight. Look at verse 25. Look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what lies before you. Mark out a straight path for your feet and then stick to the path and stay Say, You and I, we've got to make our minds up on this. We have got to decide for ourselves. I cannot do that for you. You have to make up your mind ahead of time that there are just some things we are not going to watch. There are just some things we are not going to allow into our thought life. Job stated it like this in Job 31.1. He said, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust upon a woman. Again, ladies, gender neutral here. I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust upon a man. Some of us need to make that covenant this morning. Some of us need to make that declaration this morning. There's no better time to make that kind of a covenant. That's what Job calls it, a covenant. 
with God concerning our eyes. And folks, there is no better time to make that kind of a covenant than communion. Do you know why? Communion is a covenant meal. It's a place where covenants are made. Jesus, when he met with his disciples for the final time, he took some bread, he broke, and he said, this is my body broken for you. He said, every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And when he was finished, remember, he took that cup and he lifted it up. He gave thanks to God and he said, drink from this, all of you, for this is the blood of a new covenant. Poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. He said, this is a covenant meal. It is where covenants are made. So I would encourage you this morning, if you've never, ever done that, never made that covenant, that declaration this morning that God, today, from this point forward, I covenant with you in this covenant meal to guard my heart, to guard my mind, to not look upon things that are gonna lead me astray. Maybe you've done that, and maybe you've honored that covenant. This morning is just a great opportunity to just once again say, God, I come, I affirm that covenant with you again today. God, I've been faithful in that, and God, I just want to recommit myself in that again today. This is a perfect time to do that. Maybe you're somebody, and you've done that. Maybe you did that a year ago. You look back on the past year and you just see the number of times that that you have failed miserably in that covenant. Today is a new day. This is the covenant. The blood represents forgiveness. An opportunity to wipe the slate clean. An opportunity to start afresh and anew with God today. Guard your heart. Guard your minds. Guard your thought life because it affects everything that you do. It does. And out of it are going to flow the issues, some of the issues that you're dealing with in your lives today, folks, good or bad, are the result of your thought life. And today, if your thought life is not where it needs to be. Today is the day of new beginnings. Today is the day to make a new covenant and to do that with a covenant meal. And God will meet you there. And God will honor it, even if it's the first time or if it's the thousandth time. God will forgive you He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's his offer this morning. Father, we just thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the broken body, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this covenant meal because it represents a covenant God who desires to make covenant with his people. So God, this morning as we just come and and God, again, as you just... uh, Search all hearts, and our hearts are just open before you. God, I pray, Lord, that you would just meet us in our place of need this morning.
And God, I just pray, Lord, again, that as we take Job's words there, God, and as, as we just focus on this covenant of what we do with our eyes and what we allow in our thoughts, what we allow in our minds, God, we just again come to you, God, and, and we want to seek to establish covenant. Again, for some, it may be a continuation of the covenant that was done before. Others, it may represent a first time. For others, it may represent a reestablishment of that covenant. And yet, God, your word says that it is your kindness. It's not your anger. It's not your wrath. It's not condemnation, guilt, or shame that leads us to repentance. Your word says that it is your kindness. It is your goodness that leads us to repentance to that place of change, of transformation. And so, God, I just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would flow over each of us, God, in that kindness and that goodness, in that way that would lead those that need to come to repentance, that, God, we would come to that place of repentance, of allowing you to change our hearts. And so, Father, we just come and we celebrate your goodness, we celebrate your kindness through the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Again, if you're